Thank you, John, and everyone, again, for being here on this lovely, beautiful spring morning. And, of course, there's nothing as certain in life as death and taxes. And, of course, today is the proverbial tax day in America, April 15th. Though, this year we do have until Tuesday, all the way till Tuesday, to file our documents or plead desperately for an extension. In fact, last Sunday was the first Sunday in 2018 that I wasn't actually here. You want to guess what I did with my free morning? I did our taxes, yes. <clears throat> and uh, hopefully we've had a little bit of fun this morning with music about taxes and money and with the possible exception of John, uh, who did work as a tax agent. We probably all dislike paying taxes on some level. But the truth is that we Unitarian Universalists have, in fact, supported a robust tax system for centuries now, and all, on some level, recognize the importance of funding municipal programs, such as our local fire and police departments, public schools, public hospitals, and treatment centers, our military and our diplomats. In fact, the more liberal one falls on the political spectrum, the more, in general, one supports government programs and, in turn, the collection of taxes needed to pay for them. But we as Unitarian Universalists, and indeed really all of Western religion, have kind of an interesting history when it comes to the idea of taxation. It actually begins with Jesus himself. Now before today, who had heard the, uh, the passage from the Gospel of Matthew to open, that we open with, the render unto Caesar line, or to give back unto Caesar line? Most of us, okay. It's a pretty small episode in the Gospels. Pretty small, but it is incredibly important to what little we know about the historical person known as Jesus. Now, a couple weeks ago on Easter, we spoke at length about Jesus and examined a bit about the nature of life in first century Judea. So just uh, as a recap, remember that at the time of Jesus's ministry, Jews were living under the brutal authoritarian control of their Roman occupiers, and were in, in turn ruled by a corrupt class of the Jewish elite who amassed great amounts of wealth by catering to the Romans' demands. We spoke about the commercialization of the temple at Jerusalem and the economics around the appointments of the temple priests based on the tributes they paid to the Roman authorities. But what we didn't touch on a couple of weeks ago is the conflict around taxation that the Roman occupiers brought with them to Israel. They even changed the entire economic system of the region. So when Israel was independent prior to the Roman invasion uh, in the year 63 or thereabouts, so before the Common Era, or about 60 years before Jesus would have been born, trade was based primarily on a barter system. There is some evidence that precious metals and stones were used by the aristocracy 
But the vast majority of all commerce was bartered. Goods and services weighed against other goods and services. Four ducks in exchange for a goat, a loaf of bread for a basket of eggs, a new tunic in return for a day's labor, etc. But when Jerusalem fell to the Romans the first time, again in 63 BCE, they brought with them not only their meticulous system of accounting and record keeping, but also their coins, money. Currency was literally introduced by the Romans, for the Romans, and it turned the economic world on its head, or tails, I'm sorry. <laughs> Where wealth had long been measured in land and livestock, now wealth was portable, movable, trackable, investable. This allowed the merchant class to, for the first time, wield real economic power, and a new upper class emerged. One thing that happened relatively quickly in the several decades after the Romans came to power was that wealthy Jews were able to buy up great swaths of property. So fit small family plots, which had been used for subsistence farming, were purchased in great numbers by a small number of people. The former owners turned from independent farmers relying only upon the grace of the seasons for their survival, turned to sharecroppers, working the land that used to be their own for the benefit of what we might think of as, as robber barons or land barons. By the time the man known as Jesus would reach adulthood, the wealth inequality in his land was more severe than it had ever been in the entire history of the region. There was a tiny, tiny wealthy class. The one percenters, or really maybe the one-tenth of one percenters, if you will. And then there was everybody else. There was virtually no middle class at all. It was the tiny ruling class with all of the wealth and everybody else who lived in poverty. And during the first part of the first century of the Common Era, there were many Jewish rabbis who opposed what was going on, not just Jews. And to a person, each of these rabbis were captured and executed for speaking up against Rome. Each and every one of these revolutionary rabbis claimed to be the Messiah. And by that, they didn't mean what Christians think of when they think of the Messiah. What they were saying was they were a leader directly descended from the biblical King David, a leader anointed by God to reunite the 12 tribes of Israel under one sovereign, and a leader uh, designated by God to rededicate the land to God, kicking out the Romans in the process. Now Jesus was kind of ironically a relatively unsuccessful and unknown one of these messianic rabbis in his lifetime. And as such, very little record remains of who he actually was as a person. Historians and religious scholars rely upon the writings of the New Testament, certainly, when trying to piece together an answer to the question, who was Jesus? But they also look at the larger cultural conditions which would have affected him. 
So one of the things we know about uh, the Jewish leaders who opposed Rome during the first century was that they were deeply divided upon the question of taxation and refusing to pay a tax or encouraging others not to pay a tax to Rome was an offense punishable by death, by crucifixion. Now, to be fair, many, if not most, crimes in the Roman Empire were punishable by death. But only those uh, most challenging to the emperor were crucified. This was a brutal public deterrent to the crimes of sedition and treason. And we know, unfortunately, Jesus was one of these. But Jesus had enemies within the Jewish ranks as well as among the Romans, and the episode from Matthew we heard earlier is significant for, for a number of reasons. First, because his claim that one render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give back, essentially, give back to Rome what belongs to Rome, is so counter to what the rest of the Messianic movement was claiming that this distinguishes his teachings from that of other revolutionary rabbis at the time. Now, of the few dozen sayings that religious scholars are fairly certain, or at least are in, in general agreement that Jesus himself actually said, this is one of them. Precisely because it is such a unique thing for someone in Jesus' position to have said. Now, second, the question is, is posed as a trick. Jesus even says, why are you trying to trap me? When they ask him, and Jesus avoids committing a capital crime by responding that one must give back to Caesar what is his. But the third and most important thing to know about this exchange is what Jesus really meant. Um, acclaimed contemporary religious scholar Reza Hassan speaks at length about the historical Jesus in his book, Zealot. And he points out some very interesting facts about this statement and the context in which it was said. Though many have interpreted Jesus' concession to mean he was supportive of taxation, or at least complicit in the economic systems of his day, Dr. Aslan is convinced the very opposite is true. And remember that coins were not Jewish. They were Roman. So in Jesus saying, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, he is saying, give back coins and the whole of the Roman economic system to Rome. And even more importantly, in saying, give back to God what is God's, he is saying, kick the Romans out and restore the land of Israel as a Jewish state. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. When you think about it the way that Dr. Aslan describes it, this is pretty radical stuff. And it speaks to how clever and calculated Jesus must have been when it came to communicating his message. Now the parallels between Jesus' time and our own are certainly not lost on me. In no uncertain terms, the American empire is based on a romanticized understanding of the Roman Empire. Our government buildings in Washington and elsewhere are in the neoclassical style, 
to directly reflect the Roman aesthetic. Our imperialist tendencies, which led to things like manifest destiny, which conquered a continent through assimilation of some and genocide of others. Even our original economy based on slavery, all Roman ideas and ideals. A democracy of enlightened citizens is also a Roman idea, sort of. But in reality, the Roman Senate was anything but democratically selected and filled almost exclusively with the wealthy elite or those who acted in their interests. But of course, another Roman idea we inherited was the idea of a centralized government with the right and duty to collect taxes. Kind of ironic for a country which literally was founded because of outrage over English taxes on tea and whiskey. The annual income taxes of our federal and state governments pay for the workings of the country, or they kind of do. We do often run a deficit. We continually rack up debt. And in truth, the money collected from income taxes doesn't pay for the government as much as it pays back the Federal Reserve Bank, which fronts the money for operations. Now, I admit this is pretty complex. But as certain as debt and taxes are, what is not certain is how much each of us will have to pay or how the tax burden is distributed across industries or sectors of the population. Now, the income tax was first instituted by President Lincoln during the Civil War, but subsequent court cases invalidated it towards the end of the 19th century, calling it unconstitutional. So in 1913, we adopted the 16th Amendment to the Constitution that allows Congress to levy an income tax on individuals and a tax on corporations. Now, this was originally proposed by President William Howard Taft in 1909. Anyone want to guess what's important about Taft? Anyone know anything about Taft? Most people say, yes, he was the, the heaviest president. He got famously stuck in the, the uh, bathtub in the White House and leveraged out. Uh, though, to be fair, our current president might in fact be heavier, heavier, but we'll never know because he's in excellent shape, believe me. Um, but no, inter interestingly enough, Taft was the last of four U.S. presidents to be Unitarian. Bonus points to anyone who can tell me the other three after service. <clears throat> but in addition to the income tax levied on individuals, what the 16th Amendment also did was to establish an excise tax on corporations, which proved to be a huge source of income for the federal government. Unfortunately, over time, both the individual income tax and the corporate tax structure have been adapted, adjusted, and changed by subsequent generations of our political leaders, reflecting the myriad positions of the ruling parties. Now, generally, liberals have enacted higher taxes for wealthy individuals and companies, and conservatives have reduced these, focusing on a broader rather than wealthier tax base. So, for example, after the Second World War and five straight Democratic administrations in the presidency spanning 20 years, the corporate tax rate was nearly 50 
2.5%. After this latest Republican slash Tea Party tax bill that took effect this year, our corporate tax rate is just over 20%. Though the effective rate may prove to be even lower given the countless incentives and breaks available to those with teams of accountants and returns. Likewise, over the past decades, the rate at which income was taxed for the wealthiest individuals, those making over $400,000 a year uh, in today's uh, money, was at nearly 40%. After the new tax code, the one championed by our now retiring representative Paul Ryan, by the way, that has dropped to 37%, which may not sound like much, but amounts to a minimum savings of $12,000 a year for each person in this bracket. And finally, as we heard in our second reading, the tax code has been consistently under attack for decades from special interests, lobbies, and wealthy donors who, in return for political support and campaign funding, expect special tax credits for their businesses or industries. And what all of this has meant, of course, is that now in America, we have the largest level of wealth inequality than at any time since right before the crash in 1929, which started the Great Depression. So where indeed does this leave us? We well-meaning UUs who span many, if not all, the income brackets reflected in the tax code. We who generally believe in social systems to support our population and generally agree that those most advantaged should shoulder more of the burden than the rest of us. We who have seen in our lifetimes the gap between the ultra-wealthy and the rest of us grow alarmingly large alarmingly quickly. As hopeless as the situation might seem and as despondent we might feel looking toward the future state of our economics, there are several real-world things we might do as individuals to affect, perhaps not in the short term, but at least the long-term implications of our tax system. The first is to examine and confront the disastrous Citizens United of 2010. This effectively eliminated regulations on how much money individuals could contribute to specific campaigns. In the first five years after this ruling, which was based on the highly questionable definition used by the Supreme Court of money equaling free speech, we saw campaign contributions double in five years with special interests now contributing over 50% of the money spent in any election cycle through a complex consolidation of financing known as super political action committees, those famous super PACs. This trend only continues as we are facing a highly contested series of midterm elections which may, in fact, determine the very course of human history. To date, the Koch brothers of Koch Industries have committed over $400 million to Republicans this election cycle alone, almost doubling their contributions from two years ago. Someone might ask, how, how can they possibly afford to do that? Well, let's see. 
at the adjusted income tax rate of 37%, as opposed to their rate of 39.6% last year, based on their net worth of nearly $100 billion, and an income that's probably around 10% of that annually, they should be able to make that $400 million back. Let's give them an extra couple days, three weeks. Three weeks is how long it would take them to make that money back. Give or take five or six hours in either direction. So the number one thing we can do is vote, always, right? Especially this November. But more than that, we need to educate ourselves and each other about the wealth inequality and the drastic implications of accepting the status quo. But as the temporary tax cuts continue to bolster Americans in the very short term, again, everyone is gonna see a little more money in the next six years. That's gonna go away in 2025. It will be even harder to convince our friends and neighbors that this is a problem, as it is true. People will be able to keep slightly more money than they have in the past. And ultimately, we need to affirm our collective responsibility to each other through increasing our support of businesses and nonprofit organizations which reflect our values, our initiatives, our people. Remember that the current tax code drastically increases the level of charitable giving one needs in order to deduct that giving from total income meaning that already strapped charities and churches will almost certainly see a decline in their donor base because it just doesn't make as much sense for people to give. So, ultimately, if we can all take our newfound tax credits and put them back into those institutions we trust to do the work of love, then we may, in fact, be giving back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to love what is love's. Our future may very well depend on it. So I say again, happy tax day, everyone. Blessed be and honor. I will now invite congregation to rise in body for spirit. Join us in singing our closing hymn number 128. Actually, misquoted in the order of service, number 128 in the great hymnal for all that is our life. Uh -huh. 